Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with my Carnegie Science office mate, Dr. Anirudh Prabhu. Last time, we got to know Anirudh and learn about his research on mineral informatics, in particular, how he is using association analysis to revolutionize Earth and planetary exploration. As a very brief reminder, association analysis uses sophisticated algorithms to learn association rules between mineral occurrences and their localities. So if I find minerals 1, 2, and 3 in a new location, association analysis will tell me that I should also find mineral 4 in that location with some degree of probability. The principle behind association analysis is not difficult to grasp, but imagine trying to do this by hand with thousands of different mineral species and millions of localities around the world. No mere human mind is capable of such a task, so we ask our machines to learn for us. Association analysis has major implications for mineral resources that we use in our technologies here on Earth. And it could also impact planetary exploration. Using orbital spacecraft, for instance, we get some, but not nearly comprehensive, mineralogical information about the surface of a planet. So I can imagine scenarios where association analysis is used to help determine where to send the next billion-dollar rover based on what minerals have been seen from orbit. And thus, Anirudh and I spoke last time about how association analysis might be an implicit part of what sensor systems on Star Trek starships do to find precious materials in the future, like dilithium or latinum. Now, association analysis is just one flavor of machine learning, which is itself a subset of artificial intelligence. So today, Anirudh and I dive into the history of AI, how it's brought us to this incredible present moment, where it might be going next, how close we are to making Lieutenant Commander Data, and finally, bring things full circle back to that fabled TNG episode, The Measure of a Man. Let's pick up where we left off. Associations are at the back of so many things, right? And, you know, I'd be curious to see what a lot of Star Trek watchers think about the computer that, you know, everyone seems to ask questions to and answers them. Yeah. What is at the back of it? Because, of course, with, you know, modern day AI advances, everyone thinks, oh, that's like, that must be some chat GPT like thing. Yeah. But it could also be associations and, and some sort of a reasoner behind it mm -hmm. where it'd be like, well, you know, this is the recommended course of action based on the bylaws that were written by Starfleet. And the computer is going to reason and give you recommendations based on associations between those bylaws. Right. Something like that. So it could be powered by anything. But yeah, association analysis in its crux as a concept is very simple. It just looks at associations between any entity that you want and reoccurring patterns there and makes recommendations or predictions based on those. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, so, uh, you know, really great example of the power of 
data science informatics. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if your data are objects on Amazon, TV shows on Netflix, mm-hmm. or minerals in the real world. You can apply association analysis and get really cool, novel, and unexpected results mm-hmm. by training a machine learning algorithm on that data. So that slides very nicely into my next set of questions, which is about machine learning. So association Mm -hmm. analysis is a kind of machine learning Mm -hmm. algorithm. And machine learning is a subset of this broader field of artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. So Anuruddha, somebody who's an expert in this, could you tell me the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So like you said, machine learning is a subset of the broader field of AI. I mean, I love nerding about uh, nerding out about this. If I go a bit long, you know, forgive me. <laughs> uh, but when AI started, it really started in like the fifties. In fact, the term artificial intelligence was, you know, coined by John McCarthy and a group of other scientists who joined for a meeting at Dartmouth to discuss the new advances in computer science. And the first big advance in computer science, which is the sort of the other side of the coin of machine learning is called symbolic AI or rule-based reasoning. So the way they started off was in an ideal world, what we want is an open world system, a system that can really just gain new data and gain expertise in that completely unrelated field as well, kind of thing, right? That's not what machine learning does, but that was the goal. And so what they said was what we're gonna do is we're gonna work with a bunch of experts, write a bunch of rules, in a manner that a computer can understand and build a reasoner that can read those rules and infer new facts, new situations based on those rules. Mm. And this was the first form of AI that you saw, which is now called symbolic AI. That hit a wall pretty soon. There are sort of two historical time periods in AI history called AI winter, where interest in AI went down for a while. There was not as much funding available. There were these kind of things happening. So the first AI winter happened when we started learning the limitations of symbolic AI. And you can see where the where the limitations come. If I need to rely on an expert to write rules for this, and every time I expand my data, I need to expand my rules. Like, so let's say I have a bunch of mineral exploration related rules, but I want to now add exoplanet related, exploration related rules into my AI system. Now I need to work with a bunch of more scientists who are astronomers, who are planetary scientists, who are astrobiologists to add rules for exoplanet exploration. Mm. And then they have to keep being in on this and keep updating the rules. And so eventually the human power that it was meant to reduce, right? AI is there to alleviate burdens of humans, started not working out. So like an AI that was created to like reduce the work of 100 people, if it starts taking 150 people to like maintain it in its current state, then it's not very feasible. Yeah. And that was the limitation of like the symbolic systems because you couldn't keep making rules like that. So after the first AI winter, people started exploring other venues and stuff and really Neural networks as we know it have existed since the 50s, but in the 50s, all the way through the 80s, there really wasn't enough data that was being collected that could be used to train a neural network. Mm. And so we never really got to see the power of a neural network. We got to see it like through the 90s because we now had a bunch more data and you know we were doing more innovations as a field on like backpropagation learning and things. And... Now you're like, oh, you know that thing that we sort of scrapped or like didn't think about for the last 30 years? 
that seems to work when you have a lot of data uh-huh. and kickstarted this sort of other side, which is now known as machine learning, which was sort of a closed world system. So this is the other side of the coin because a closed world system only knows enough about a domain based on the data that you train it on. If it's outside your training data, it's just false. Hmm. So that's also one of the fundamental differences, different views in AI is open world versus closed world. The next part of it is familiar to a lot of people, but like since then we haven't really looked back on machine learning, right? It's just been going from stride to stride with the advent of deep learning. We're even more paying attention to like things that, oh, we have a lot more data, but now we can train it on like neural networks with a lot more middle layers. Mm. And like you get great predictions that are unexpectedly good for things that even humans can't even identify at times. And part of my PhD was also a way to sort of make these two sides reconcile. But in the years since my PhD or since I started my PhD, this has developed into its own field, which is now called neurosymbolic reasoning, which is like neural networks plus symbolic AI. And let's try to like make those both mesh together. This has various names, various kind of fields, physics-based AI or neurosymbolic reasoning or neurosymbolic AI. And that's another big frontier that's been going on these days. Wow. That was a long answer. I apologize. Maybe you want to edit this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. Thank you for that, you know, long but also brief history of artificial intelligence. I thought it was just so fascinating how it went through lots of starts and stalls. You mentioned certain AI winters where it sort mm-hmm. of fell out of favor, but then it was really the advent of collecting and generating so much data that allowed AI to pick up back again and really sort of shows that synergy between data and intelligence, right? You you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we had AI winters in the past, I'd say right now we're an AI spring. Oh, yeah. Uh, AI has become sort of this buzzword these days, a lot of buzz around this particular technology called large language models, mm-hmm. um, one of which is ChatGPT, which I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people have probably heard of. How, if at all, is association analysis, all of this great work that is being employed in mineralogy from yourself, but also in every aspect of our lives, uh, determining what we see on social media, buy on Amazon, etc. How is that related to these sort of large language mm-hmm. models in ChatGPT? That's a great question. So I'll talk about ChatGPT in specific here. Mm-hmm. Large language models are sort of, it, it means what the name suggests, right? You just train it on a lot of data. So it's an NLP model that trains on a large amount NLP of data. NLP meaning? Natural language processing, mm-hmm. uh, which is mostly text data, scraping text from anywhere and everywhere and trying to like find patterns or understand those kind of things. Mm-hmm. NLP has been around for a while. LLMs are new because we have a lot more data to train it on. So that's the large language model part of it. But ChatGPT itself is a more interesting thing because the similarity in ChatGPT and association analysis is the unsupervised nature of both of them are unsupervised. Uh, Just to draw back to one minor point you made earlier, which is like we're training this on a lot of data because both of these are unsupervised. There's no training going on, but Mm. it's like trying to find out patterns unsupervised. So behind association analysis is the data mining innovation, which was there, which is called association rule learning. So it finds patterns and creates these kind of association rules out of it. Now, ChatGPT is like way newer, of course, you know, and ChatGPT is based off of this fundamental neural network architectural advance called transformers. So 
back before transformers became a big thing because transformers the first paper or the big paper that introduced them was a 2017 paper titled attention is all you need which is sort of a play on one of the key advances that the transformers makes which is called an attention mechanism so before transformers started we used what was called recurrent neural networks rnns for text and we used cnns which is convolutional neural network for images Okay. And they're all the same kind of neural network, but they have different architecture in there, like very specifically, right? So Transformers was another new kind of architecture that was able to completely blow out recurrent neural networks in terms of the amount of data it could consume and remember hmm. for training. Now, the reasons RNNs were initially preferred was because RNNs were for text because they would take a sequence of like text so every letter, every character could have its own like place in the AI's memory and the context of the occurrence of that word or that paragraph or that sentence would be stored in so that it could make sense of those for future text outputs or predictions, right? You can see how that would run out of memory soon. So there were other advances. There was one thing called LSTM, which was long short-term memory, which was another mechanism with a forget gate and a memory gate kind of thing to decide, I'll remember the more important things and like forget the less important things. But we kept hitting walls on like, well, we can't train it on a lot of data. It takes a lot of time, a lot of hardware to run this. Transformers theoretically have infinite memory, but are able to take in so much more data and remember it than RNNs were able to, which is why ChatGPT and other sort of GPTs now can be trained on huge models at lower computational costs and can make such great sort of predictions or like chatbots or something like that. So the similarity between association analysis and ChatGPT starts and ends with they're both unsupervised. Otherwise, they're very different in the way they work, in the way they consume data, in the way they form like associations among each other. Because what transformers do is they have sort of a number for every word that you have in a sentence and the sequence of numbers are then remembered. And you're like, oh, well, server, the word server in this context was used for computer server. And in this other context was used for a person who brings you food at a restaurant. Mm. Or, you know, just Washington is the example that's always used in conferences, which is, is it Washington, the city, D.C., Washington, the state, Washington, the president? What is it? Right? So that's where the association analysis really is different. Because so GPT takes in context because it needs to take in context. We don't need to because we are purely viewing them based on occurrences only. And we've been applying them to these very specific. Right use cases, right? It's for mineral occurrences only. Mm -hmm. So it'll take in minerals and mineral properties. So it's easier for us to make these predictions. We don't need context embedded based on text usage. We have context embedded based on geological usage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's but it's very similar though, right? Because if if you ask the algorithm to read a sentence and it's got the word Washington in it, but then it's also got like monuments or mm -hmm. cherry blossoms or something like exactly. that. And you're like, okay, well maybe it's not talking about Washington, the state, but Washington, D.C., because yes, those are things that exactly. occur in D.C. So both of those take in context, but they handle them in very different ways. Okay, okay. This is so fascinating. You already brought up the idea of the computer 
on Star Trek, right? Because mm-hmm. you can literally ask the computer anything to do mm-hmm. anything, to tell you where a person is, to hail somebody, to transport you from this place to that place. And it will come up with an answer that is appropriate. It's almost like that computer is a very advanced chat GPT. Mm-hmm. We may be actually very close to achieving the computer in Star Trek. These days, you can walk into a smart home and ask it to, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have a smart home. So I'm just making, <laughs> you know, vacuum the floor or chill the water for turn me. Or turn off the, the oven. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Right. And it's, it's basically we're almost there for the Star Trek computer. Mm-hmm. But where we may not be almost, and I want to get your opinion on this, is the transition between something that is just a very sophisticated chat GPT and actual general intelligence or sentience. So last year, there was a Google AI engineer mm-hmm. who claimed that one of the chatbots that Google was making, very similar to chat GPT, was sentient. And then that engineer was subsequently fired <laughs> in Star Trek. Like mm-hmm. The Measure of a Man, you know, that uh, TNG episode that we were discussing at the top of the episode, one of our most beloved characters, Data, is a sentient artificial life form. And in this episode, Data basically goes on trial to decide whether or not this android, this piece of artificial intelligence, is worthy of human rights. And mm-hmm. ultimately, they decide to grant him autonomy. It's a very moving scene, as we talked about. Anurud, how close are we to reproducing something that has the qualities and sophistication of data? I don't think we're really close at all. Uh, This is just my opinion, of course. I'd love to hear why. Yeah. So here's the thing. We, and there's been a lot of uh, sort of recent advances in AI, right? ChatGPT being the biggest one. But like, if you want to look at the last week, so there's been like two or three big advances in AI. Some very interesting preprints have been on archive. So there's this new thing called AutoGPT, which I don't believe is even a paper or a preprint yet. It's a GitHub repository that this amazing team of scientists have made, and it's autonomous chat GPT. So you don't even need to have like chat prompts back and forth anymore. I can give it a large goal and some like sub objectives, and it can keep running autonomously on itself, improving itself towards that goal until either the goal is met or until you say like, that's fine, that's enough. So like the example is that I can tell auto GPT to say, grow my Twitter following to a million followers. That's your final goal. And then the sub objectives are going to be like, I want data science related content. I want to reach an audience of both scientists and non-scientists. I want to talk about the advances in data science made by the scientists and researchers and, you know, engineers in, around the world. And these are your three object, sub-objectives. The larger goal is get me to a million followers. It'll go off. It'll scrape the web. You don't need to train it on any kind of data for doing that. It'll scrape the web for the relevant data science content, bring it in, look through the objectives, create subtasks, prioritize subtasks, execute them, and start getting you there. All autonomously, which is amazing. But... It's doing that for like specific tasks that are out there that you set it to do and which is amazing at it. Another interesting one was a team of scientists at Stanford and Google together have came up with a with this paper talking about video game NPCs, right? So they want to improve video game NPCs as they exist. And so what they've done is they've sort of, they gave them, this uses chat GPT, by the way, they gave them like one paragraph about each 
and PC and that's all they were given. And they were basically simulated and told to live a life huh. and interact with each other. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of uh, that Star Trek Lower Decks episode, which I know you haven't watched, but yes. it, but basically uh, Ensign Boimler tries to generate his own movie in the holodeck mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he so. makes the uh, characters have their own sort of backstories with one of these like auto-generated things. Right. So it seems like that exists in Star Trek. We're also there. Yeah. So this is like pretty new as well, right? And I don't know how long they've been working on it, but the preprint came out very recently. Yeah. And they found that each of them evolved in their own ways. The artists would go out and paint. The farmers would farm. You know, they, they would just go about their lives and design their own lives around that. And you still need to give them certain pushes and nudges for certain things. But like one of those like nudges was, hey, you're going to be hosting a Valentine's party. That's all the prompt that was given. And characters started asking others out, planning and coordinating to go the valentine's party together coordinated times did this and that you know and they were running with it which is awesome now why am i giving you all of these like immense advances in ai and still saying we're not close to data yeah because i mean look it, it, it yeah. sounds yeah we're it getting sounds it. like we're getting there. yeah you know, if you can give an ai just the prompt valentine's day and then it goes and makes its own decisions i'm doing air quotes for those of you who can't see decisions with its own quote-unquote agency to do these other things you know that sounds like a human being so what is Mm -hmm. the gulf between that and true sentience i can't even comment on true sentience honestly because just like in the measure of a man it's hard to articulate what self-awareness is or you know what sentience is so that's not going to be my comment at all okay my view on why we're not there yet and as my answer would have been even a few years ago, we're closer than we've ever been is always going to be the answer to something like that, right? Mm. But for something like data, for someone like data, I almost sounded like Maddox for a second. <laughs> uh, the, for there to be an entity that is not only able to observe the world constantly all the time in an open world scenario and learn and act upon it and update themselves and really grow, we're very far away from it. Because even in the video game example that I gave you, this was because you had a closed world system, you had long simulation times, and you had constant interactions of NPCs to NPCs so they could grow together. This to me is a more, much more advanced version, but still advanced version of how AlphaGo learned how to play the game. Because it could keep going you could keep practicing at scales that were not common for humans and sort of get really, really good at that thing. But it's still good at that one thing. And even if you're saying, oh, NPCs are doing this, the world of that video game is very closed. You know exactly what the boundaries of that world are, right? And so I believe that this will make video games better than ever, especially those MMORPG type games where you have huge worlds with NPCs that are sort of roaming around that landscape. But that is still a fraction compared to the complexities of our world and our universe. And the scales at which we need to learn things is very different. Mm. And the simplish comparison of this is the way humans learn, the way babies learn. We as babies form associations faster than you think. Back to association analysis, right? Uh, But... We need so few data points to be able to recognize 
faces of people, recognize your pets, differentiate your pets from another dog. Like babies are able to do this. Children are able to do this very easily. We need so much more data to get to a baby level of intelligence, let alone anything else. That data is like a part of the team. He is as good, if not better, than most people on the crew mm-hmm. at generally perceiving things and acting upon those things. We're nowhere near that. It is still our goal to get up to a baby's level of intelligence. <laughs> uh, and it takes us more data and more computational power than we've ever had for that. And so we will get to a stage, I don't know how long in the future, if it is even possible, where we either have the massive computational power to do so or we devise ways that will take so little data to learn to make the same kind of distinctions and conclusions and acting upon certain data a certain way. And, you know, there have been advances to do all of these things. You know, transfer learning lets you learn a particular domain and add on to that to a different domain to help reduce the amount of data that you need. But you still need a lot of data and like it takes it a long time to decide. So to summarize that gulf between where we are now with all of our amazing AI technology and Lieutenant Commander Data, if I, I realize now that like we're speaking about data mm-hmm. and oh, yes. we're speaking about data. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the context thing comes up there too. Yeah, right. Yeah, we need, a, we need some if, kind of algorithm to tell if me there which was, one is it. If there was a transcript of this and you would feed it into a system, I'm curious whether it will be able to pick up the differences between one data and the other. Yeah, when will it capitalize Mm-hmm. data. Anyway, um, the gulf, to just summarize what I'm learning from this very fascinating conversation with you, there are a couple of things. Number one is the computational power. We're just not there yet, but maybe one day we will accumulate or create the computational power needed to have some kind of general intelligence. But then the other thing is the complexity of the environment that that learning system is in. For a video game or for any of these other chatbots, It's a closed world system. And so it just can't have that rich learning experience that an actual human being can have. And like you said, we're nowhere near able to reproduce the kind of learning that a baby does. And maybe also because a baby isn't just a few months old, but actually billions of years old of evolution that has created a neural architecture in their Mm -hmm. brain that is far more sophisticated than any neural architecture that we've instantiated in silico. Mm -hmm. So maybe those are the gulfs. Yeah. And I mean, if we're going to take the things said in Star Trek super seriously, then data actually in that episode gives out exactly his processing power, does he not? Some quadrillion bits (laughs) of something and some like massive mostly fictional units of data that he processes all the time. Commander, what is the capacity of your memory and how fast can you access information? I have an ultimate storage capacity of 800 quadrillion bits. My total linear computational speed has been rated at 60 trillion operations per second. So, hey, if you have a goal, then, you know, you can use that as a goal to let's that's say that's where we need to get. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot more of the advances are going to be algorithmic in sort of As hardware grows and as our computational power grows, we need to also work on reducing the need for the amount of data that is being trained Mm -hmm. so that we can learn more from less data. And that's definitely a field of research that's being done in AI and quite a fascinating one at that. Yeah. And last one that I haven't touched upon at all is explainability in AI Mm. because data is able to explain all of his decisions and has reasoning for why 
he acts a certain way or does a certain thing and also the brief bit of awkwardness in explaining certain situations over the other a lot of the deep learning advances are still very black boxy which is mm-hmm. that we don't know why they came to a certain conclusion unless we're able to really open that up and like examine mm-hmm. the neural network which is still hard to do so i think explainability in ai is also going to be a key advance it's a separate field xai that needs to progress in order for us to get any kind of like super advanced general ai so we're quite a ways away but ai has been growing at a faster pace doing amazing things more in the last couple of years than i've ever seen it so mm-hmm. i'm very excited yeah i love that last bit of insight that you gave the explainability where mm-hmm. if you asked commander data why are you activating this hologram of tasha yar he could explain that he misses his crewmate that died mm-hmm. and if you ask chatgpt why did you respond this way to my query it doesn't know right it just doesn't know Okay, one last question for you, Anurud. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about auto-GPT, where mm-hmm. you could just give it some goal, like make my Twitter following one, one million followers, mm-hmm. it kind of scared me. Yeah. That goal is fine. That goal is perfectly, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. okay. But what if you gave it the goal, start a war between Canada and Mexico, you know, yeah. just as a yeah. ludicrous example. Yeah. You know, that is very, very scary to me because... Mm-hmm. AI interfacing with actual humans and influencing their decisions could span anywhere from now I will turn on this TV show instead of that other one, or I will Mm -hmm. buy this product instead of this other one to like actual geopolitical decisions about Mm -hmm. how we're going to try to run this world in a Mm -hmm. very fractured time. So this, I think, is really reflected in some of the recent seasons of Star Trek, where a lot of the the antagonists mm-hmm. are actually artificial intelligence ah, gone see. awry. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about this with Daniel Nichols, our mm-hmm. colleague last year, about evil AIs like Section 31's mm-hmm. Control or the USS Alito from Lower mm-hmm. Decks. My last question for you, Anarud, is look into your crystal ball. <laughs> in this great debate over whether AI mm-hmm. will end up enhancing our lives or bringing about our doom, where do you fall? Ah, that's a great question. And I have to say, I've thought about it quite a bit. As a pragmatist and a slightly more positive-leaning person, I still think it'll enrich our lives if I'm forced to pick a side. But I think what is needed, and this is what I've thought for a while as well, is there needs to be some more formal regulation and formal sort of curation of the development of AI technologies, which goes a a bit against the sort of wild west we have going on right now in AI development, especially in the last year, year and a half, because, you know, ChatGPT is made, OpenAI is like, has scored open source, AutoGPT has been made on top of that. There's been another sort of system called Baby AGI, which has emerged in the last, like, I don't know, that, that preprint is also probably like a week or two old. And... Everyone is excited about it. Ideas are flowing. Great advances are being made. But people just take this and run with it and make these advances, which is great for now. But we need more regulation on what this can be used for, what this can be trained for, what this, what should, what should this, what should be the boundaries of this system? Because for some of the more established AI and recommender systems and so on. You know, you have robo-lawyers, robo-investment bankers, you have AIs that can scan through MRI scans and make recommendations to doctors for things. They all have their fixed domain and they don't step outside their domain, right? 
so i do agree some things can sound scary and it does not encourage non scientists especially non ai scientists that i say well it's black boxy and i don't know exactly why it made that decision or why it made that recommendation but we are the ones who are building it we know exactly the scope of what we want to train the model on and what kind of decisions we wanted to make and similarly there should be curation on how this can and should be used as with any technology right i mean i would like to pose a question back as an open question in general to those who are a bit nervous about like where can this ai go forget about that for a second and think about what are the scopes of google right i can search some pretty crazy things and get accurate results back on those and there's no there is no curation on that to a certain extent right so you can search something just as alarming as as you gave examples for and you'll get like accurate advice on how <laughs> to do that on google for some reason what if you search for something pretty alarming on google and it gives you back accurate results for how to cause strife how to break the system in some way commit a crime or something like that right you will get answers back so you have to apply regulations there as well which there isn't a lot of necessarily but different countries have different types of regulations on the search results that are posted out there and what that means i mean australia passed some reforms on controlling google's influence over the search results that are put out there europe had some uh, something similar passed as well and so we're figuring out how to make the internet a better place and we're making a lot of mistakes along the way because you shouldn't really be closing off or censoring the internet period is one view right and so we're trying to find the balance there we're going to have to find the balance with ai as well in the same way because if chat gpt makes a recommendation to you from a general user standpoint how is that different from google returning you a certain search result hmm bing has combined both of those right yeah in in bing's new optimized search so yeah we've had time to ponder over like this kind of stuff even before ai became what it is the buzzword that it is and we need the same kind of like thought process and regulations you know there's an entire field of you know ai policies and ai ethics for like when ai develops into a more general thing as well that is quite outside my expertise but there are scientists out there who think about this a lot who work on this a lot and who are experts in this and they'll have i'm sure very nuanced views on what we should do i just think some sort of curation process or regulation process would be excellent to sort of keep us on track a bit and we'll be excited but it'll be like there's someone there to curtail it right it seems like in addition to the technological frontier of ai there's mm-hmm. also a policy and legislative frontier mm-hmm. and i feel like that star trek episode just hits it on the nose again where it's like yeah ai is going to go to court i'm sure that legislation and you know all of this policy stuff is going to actually need to be in place to regulate a lot mm-hmm. of these things and that's going to have to do with uh, lawyers and yep. our judicial system our legislative system mm-hmm. uh politicians it is really a crucial time in ai oh, yes. and in ai policy so thank you anarud for being on strange new worlds happy to be here thanks for having me 
I am sure that you are going to be back soon. Mm -hmm. We have so many exciting projects. Hopefully with more Star Trek knowledge. <laughs> yeah, <you're... laughs> exactly. Yeah, you've got your homework cut mm -hmm. out for you. Um, yeah, I know. There's so many exciting projects out there that we're right. doing. You'll be back in no time. But until then, where can our listeners find you on the internet? My website is anirudprabhu.com. A-N-I-R-U-D-H-P-R-A-B-H-U.com. I don't know that I'm very active on social media, but, you know, my Twitter handle is Anirudh underscore 14. And I think that's about it. You'll find my other links on my website. So if like, if you want to find out more about me and get in touch with me, my contact information is on my website and any social media that I happen to be active on at the time will be on anirudhprabhu.com. Wow, my conversations with Anirudh always give me so much to think about, and this chat for the podcast was no exception. Again, I feel so lucky to have this incredibly talented, generous, and eloquent data scientist as my friend and office mate at the Carnegie Institution for Science's Earth and Planets Laboratory. And I hope you enjoyed the chance to meet him too. Thanks, as always, for listening to Strange New Worlds. You can follow the show on Twitter at Science of Trek and myself at MikeWai, M-I-Q-U-A-I. Next time, I'll be joined by my other Carnegie Science colleague, Dr. Peter Gao, to recap the thrilling finale of Star Trek Picard and give us an update on what JWST is doing to characterize exoplanets, those real-life, strange new worlds out there in the universe. Until next time, take care, stay curious, and I'll see you out there. I'm beginning to like the taste. It's strong, yeah. but I'm beginning to like the taste. Yeah, it's, it's a good tea. Yeah, it's a really nice tea. Tea Earl Grey hot. <laughs> yes. <laughs>